Good morning and good evening. Uh, um, we're so happy to be learning together again. This is uh, the third session, right? The th third session. Third session uh, out of a three uh, part series. So the final session of Rabbi Ziering's class, uh, Sukkot, the Paradigm of Universal Torah Ideals with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. And um, uh, for those of us who are watching uh, live on Facebook, uh, feel free to uh, engage uh, on uh, comments on Facebook. I will be monitoring the chat there and will relay any uh, messages or questions uh, to Rabbi Ziering. So feel free to participate, even if you're not uh, with us on Zoom. Uh, and with that, I'll uh, let you uh, begin, Rabbi Ziering. Okay, great. Uh, just let me know if my internet isn't working because it's telling me. Yeah, so far, unstable, so good. So just, okay. Okay, good. Um, okay, so so this is the third week in uh, in our series. Um, and as we've seen in the last two weeks, we've been discussing cases where there's a, a value um, that is manifest in, uh, in the laws of, uh, of Sukkot, um, that while they may be um, intent, more intensely expressed um, by Sukkot, they have and they express themselves in different ways, they manifest themselves in different ways by, um, throughout the year. So the first week we we talked about um, Hidur Mitzvah, the importance of beautifying the mitzvah and appreciating aesthetics um, and expressing our commitment to the mitzvah through that through that that expression of beauty. Um, in the second week, we talked about the the importance, the principle of mitzvah, um, a patram and asoka, that someone who's uncomfortable um, is exempt from the soka and whether that's a universal rule or a local rule to sukkah, and even if it is a local rule uh, to sukkah, at some level it might be capturing the broader value of um, of gadol kavar abriot that at least in principle, human dignity is so great that it overrides certain principles um, from the Torah, which, while again, may have a more limited um, implementation than its uh, than its than its rhetoric would imply. Um, it's still something that shapes the halachic process. Um, and today we're going to we're going to talk about a third one, and that is the principle of bechol derachecha da'ehu, um, the notion that serving God uh, goes beyond simply what we normally think of as uh, as mitzvot, as ritual, um, as classically quote unquote religious, whatever exactly you want to what whatever phrase you want to put on it, um, but can in fact capture and encapsulate. Um, the broadness of uh, of life. Um, we're going to see this both through halacha and interpretation of a of, of an agada, uh, as well as some halachic uh, sources. So we start with a very uh, interesting agada. There's a very lengthy, very lengthy agada, the beginning of Odezara, that discusses um, well, not exactly Sukkot, but it ends up with Sukkot, but actually uh, begins with the Messianic period where the nations of the world come to God um, and they, they complain um, to God that the Jews had the opportunity to keep the mitzvot and they want the opportunity to keep um, the mitzvot. They want the opportunity to be rewarded for the per performance of good deeds. Um, and what we get here is a dialogue uh, between the nations of the world and, uh, and God. Um, now, uh, Jeffrey Rubenstein has pointed out that there's good reason to believe that this Gemara isn't just um, a random agada, but it's um, but it was actually a drasha, um, a homiletic, a, a 
you know, a shul uh, sermon of sorts that would be given around uh, around Sukkot. And so it actually was the way that uh, at least some members of Chazal tried to get people in the mood um, for Sukkot. I mean, this is the story. So Amar Lamakadosh Baruch Hu. So God, this is the middle of the conversation. So God, the Holy One, blessed be, he says to them, um, I want you to come and testify that the Jewish people kept the Torah in its entirety, and therefore they deserve the reward they're getting. And now we get this entire history of the Jewish people. So Nimrod, according to the Midrash, is the person who cast Avram into the fiery furnace. So let him testify at Avram. Let him testify that Avram didn't worship idols. Let Lavan come. That in the 20 years that he worked for his father-in-law, he was never suspect of stealing. Let the wife of Potiphar come and say that Yosef, that despite, despite her overtures to him, he never violated sexual prohibitions. From the book of Daniel, let Nebuchadnezzar, who said, if you don't worship my, you don't bow to my statue, I will throw you into the fiery furnace. Let him come and say, Shalom, Ishtachavu, let Selem. Yavu Darya Veish, let Darius come. Yavu Darya Daniel, Shalom, that he was, um, there was the decree not to pray or make any requests, and anyone who would would be thrown into the lion's den. So let um, Daryavesh come and testify about Daniel that he was willing to be thrown into the lion's den rather than give up on prayer. Now he takes the four interlocutors of Eov in the book of Job. Let them come and testify that the Jews kept the Torah. So Amr Lefanav, Rabono Shalalam, Tanulanu. They said, okay, fine. The Jews keep the Torah. Give us a chance and we'll keep the Torah too. God says, fools. If you have a Shabbat meal coming up, you prepare on Friday. You prepare on Friday, you can eat on Shabbat. But if you didn't prepare on Friday, where are you going to eat on Shabbat? Meaning, you didn't prepare. Now is the messianic period. Now you see the truth. Now you can't come and complain and say, I want to keep the Torah. It's not how it works. But you know what? By right, according to the strict rules of justice, it's true. I shouldn't give you another chance, right? If you want to serve God, it has to be in the world where God's presence isn't clear, where it's still difficult. Messianic period, when God's presence is evident, now you can't decide, now I want to keep the Torah. But you know what? I'm going to give you a chance anyways. I have one easy mitzvah. The sukashma, we call it sukkah. So go, keep it. That's your chance. He said, how could this be? Don't we say that I command the, the mitzvah to you today? to perform them, which means you can't perform them today, meaning the Messianic period, and you don't get reward now. But he says, fine. But God is not trying to trick the, the, his creation, so he's giving them a chance. And the chance is sukkah. And it's an easy mitzvah. It's a light mitzvah. The Gemara says, light. 
What's so light about it? What's so easy about sukkah? Because it doesn't cost money, which for us sounds funny because sukkot can be a very expensive holiday. Um, the sukkah itself can cost a lot. The schach can cost a lot. The lulav and etrog can cost a lot. But realistically, when you read Tanakh, the schach comes from whatever is left over in the field. If you're a farmer, you have a lot of leftover stuff, a lot of branches and a lot of bramble and a lot of, I don't know, the straw, straw who knows? And you can use that for schach, so it doesn't cost so much money. And the walls can be made of anything, you know, or if you're like most, most houses here in Israel, you have a built-in pergola, you have a built-in uh, sukkah that basically stays there all year. And you, either you put the schach on or there's built-in schach. So it's a one-time cost. It doesn't cost a lot every year. Miyad, so now they try. So each of them make a sukkah on their roof. And God makes it really, really hot. Like the middle of the summer, like the Middle Eastern summer. Right? So here in the middle of Tammuz, July, August, right? it could be easily 100 degrees. So he makes it really, really hot. So everybody kicks their sukkah v'yotze and they leave. Gemara says, really? God is going to make it boiling hot? Scorching hot? But you just said that God isn't trying to trip up people. He isn't trying to trick them. And furthermore, the Gemara says, yeah, but Mishum Yisrael Namizim did the Mashchalut Kufatamut Archaga. Sometimes the summer is late. So today, right, Sukkot is in a week and a little bit. It's quite hot today here in Israel, right? It's in the 90s or something like that. It's still hot, right? Outside can be a little bit uncomfortable. So, you know what? It's not unfair. The Jews had this mitzvah also, and sometimes it's hot. Vahavaluhut Sarah. And sometimes it causes pain to be in the Sukkah. Gemara says, that's great. It's great. I get it. So you're giving the non-Jews the same chance the Jews had. Because sometimes it's uncomfortable for the Jews to be in the sukkah. But as we saw last week, if you're uncomfortable in the sukkah, you can leave. So first, Gemara says, listen, if God's making it oppressively hot, so that's not fair. Because that seems to be that he's making sukkah harder, the, the mitzvah of sukkah harder for the non-Jews than it was for the Jews. The Gemara says, maybe not, because sometimes it's really hot for the Jewish people also. I don't know what it's going to be like next week, but if it's anything like this week, it's not going to be so comfortable. Gemara says, okay, fine, but at a fundamental level, this is wrong, because the sukkah, as we saw, has a unique rule that mitzta'er, that if you're uncomfortable, you can leave. So the non-Jews, these idolaters in the future, are sweltering hot in the sukkah, and they leave. Well, they're allowed to leave. What does that prove? So the Gemara says, yeah, Nihi de patur, you're right, they're exempt. But why would they kick the sukkah? When Jews leave the sukkah, they don't kick the sukkah. Now, this is a very weird agotic passage. And again, as I mentioned from Jeffrey Rubinstein, he thinks that this is an actual drasha that was given around Sukkot. But that only deepens the question, which is, okay, so the rabbis are trying to convey certain ideas, to tell us how to think about Sukkot. What is this story? Right? So this story tells us in the Messianic period, the idolaters are going to come to God and say, we want one more chance to keep the mitzvot. 
God says, too bad. Really, I shouldn't give you a chance. But you know what? On second thought, I will give you a chance. And of all the mitzvot I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick sukkah. And then we have, so that's weird enough, right? Because that implies that there's something unique about the mitzvah of sukkah, that if I had to pick one mitzvah in all the 613 mitzvot to give the nation of the world a chance to live a Torah life, one mitzvah to show that they're willing, that they have commitment, they have potential, after millennia of worshiping idols or whatever it is that the Gemara here is imagining, one chance, it's sukkah. That already tells you there's something very unique about sukkah. But then the Gemara says, okay, but first of all, it's also easy. Well, it's easy, right? You're going to test people's commitment with an easy mitzvah. That's already very odd. And then the Gemara says, and it was easy, but God made it hard. God made it oppressively hot. That seems unfair because you want to, the, the idolaters are coming and saying, we're no less committed than the Jews, but if you're making it oppressively hot, then you're giving us an unfair burden. Samara says, well, not really. Because sometimes it's hot for the Jews also. Samara says, okay, fine. But then Samara says, bigger problem. If it's that hot and it's so uncomfortable that you're going to leave, then you're allowed to leave. So now we've boiled down the entire meaning of Judaism to test these idolaters who want one chance at doing what God said to one mitzvah. And we zero in on a moment at which it's so hot that they're allowed to leave because as we saw last week, sukkah is unique. Sukkah, if you're uncomfortable, you can leave. The Gemara says that's true. You are allowed to leave. And a Jew, if it's 100 degrees and I'm sweating and I don't have an air conditioning in my sukkah, I'm allowed to leave next week. But I'm not going to kick the sukkah on my way out. That is it. The entire test the entire test, according to Zagada, the test of whether the idolaters, after millennia of not serving God properly, he gives them one chance. The chance is oddly enough to keep sukkah, but not that. It's when they legitimately are exempt from leaving the sukkah. They're, they're legitimately exempt from being in the sukkah. They're allowed to leave. The test of whether they are committed is whether when they walk out those doors, they leave nicely or they kick the sukkah. That is the ultimate test of mankind. Now that is a very, very striking and very odd statement that we need to unpack. How could it possibly be that that is the moment, that the ultimate test, literally the last test at the end of days is when you take advantage of a legitimate exemption in sukkah, that if you're uncomfortable, you can leave, Will you kick the sukkah? And again, according to Rubenstein, this is the drasha. This is the sermon that the rabbis give to get you in the mindset of sukkah. So there must be something hidden here that's very important that gets us prepared for this holiday. So what I want to try to do is figure out what that is. What is it about sukkah that makes this at all understandable? So let's review. To get there, let's review something we saw last week, which is sukkah is unique. The reason that, as we saw, by sukkah, you're allowed to leave if you're uncomfortable is because uniquely the mitzvah of sukkah is formulated as 
Teishu Tadiru, live in the sukkah as you would in your house. Right? That is uniquely the mitzvah. It's not really a ritual, right? Shofar blowing is a ritual. There's a ritual object. There's a ritual act. The specific number of bl uh, of blasts in a specific order. The menorah has a ritual. Pesach. There's a ritual of eating. Most that's a ritual. This is not quite a ritual. It's the sukkah, I guess, is a ritual object. But what you're asked to do in the sukkah is live there. Right? Is to live normal life. Just do it in the sukkah. And because, as we saw last week from Rima Manoach. That very simple principle seems to explain mitzvah. That explains why mere discomfort gets you out of the sukkah because it's not a ritual. It's ironically the ritual is to live normal life. Just do it in the sukkah. So to review the source we saw last week, the Gemara says in on Chavchet in sukkah, the Mishnah says Kol for seven days, Adam keva for seven days, you make the sukkah your, your permanent home, and your house is your temporary residence. Yarduk shamim, if it rains, when can you leave? When, you're, when, you're, uh, when your dish starts to spoil. And if it rains in the sukkah, it's like you offering a cup of water to your a servant offering a cup of water to his master, and the master throws it in his face. And now the Gemara elaborates. What does it mean to live in the sukkah? So again, it's nothing elaborate, nothing ritualized, nothing, no, no, no recitation of verses, no magic foods, no candles, no shofar, no matzah, no maror, no nothing. adam keva. All of Sukkot makes Sukkot your permanent house, and your house is temporary. You have nice vessels, you have nice plates, you have china, bring it to the Sukkot. No, you have nice sheets, nice bedding, nice pillows, bring it to your bed in the Sukkot. You're eating, you're drinking, do it in the Sukkot. You want to hang out, you want to play board games, you want to watch a movie. Do it in the sukkah. Right? We in, in my house we make a point of this, right? Not just, I mean, the weather is nice, so it's easy for us, but not only do we eat and drink, we always have a movie night in the sukkah, right? Even the things, right? You think, oh, the sukkah is so holy. No, it I mean it is, it's holy, it's important, but if it's a movie, they'll watch my kids will watch inside. So we make us we make a movie night in the sukkah, right? It is exactly what you would do. You're on vacation, you have your sukkah. So what would you do? We let our kids watch a little bit more during vacation. So you'll do it in the sukkah. And how do we know? Because it says, you shall live. Live in the sukkah as you live in your house. And that's what we mean. You learn everything you do in the sukkah. Now, that's very nice. So the mitzvah is unique and it doesn't really have a ritual. This might give another perspective to the Gemara. The Gemara said that sukkah doesn't cost you money. Now we said one aspect of that is it doesn't cost you money because if you're a farmer, is cheap, right? Tzach is cheap. 
Right? Now, again, I know that for most of us, our stock is expensive, though it's much more expensive in America than it is here. Here you buy at the supermarket for nothing and you know you buy it for like 100 shekel for a mat and last you however many years. But it doesn't have to cost you anything. I remember once when I was in um, many, many years ago, when I was living uh, still in Staten Island, I was by my parents. There was a terrible, terrible storm right before Sukkot. And literally, Erev Sukkot, the schach mat that we had, it just tears. It was, I think it might be for those who remember, I think this was the year that um, I think it was called Sukkot or right around. It was like a, it was just under a hurricane or something. And the wind caused a, a terrible accident with the Staten Island Ferry. It was a really, really serious uh, storm that year. So the schach shredded. And it was like, I don't know, 10 in the morning on, on Erev Sukkot. And my father really doesn't like driving to the heart, like to the heart of Brooklyn, like Borough Park, Flatbush on around holidays because it's, it's very, very busy. Um, so we try to do any shopping we need. We did in advance. That's Sukkot. It's Erev Sukkot. The only place that's open that's going to have a schach mat is there. And my father is like, I, oh God, I need to go to like, I need to find that one store that's still open that has schach mats on Erev Sukkot. We have a few hours. This is going to be crazy. And, and we joked and we said, unless you find, you know, branches, and my father literally drives out of the house and 20 seconds later, he returns home. He says, you're not going to believe this. And down the block, one of our neighbors happened to have just cut down one of their trees. right? And in front of the house, waiting for the garbage, were perfectly cut branches and logs that could be for the schach. So we just walked down the block, carried it over and put it on our sukkah. Right? It cost us nothing. So one meaning of sukkah being chisaron kis because it doesn't cost anything, is that fundamentally it costs nothing. If you're a farmer, that you have these branches around. But now I think we can add another perspective, is that in what sense is it easy? Is it light? Well, if you actually think about it, you're not asked to do anything special. You're asked to live your life. Just do it in the sukkah. That's all we're asking. If it's uncomfortable, go home. But if it's comfortable, do it. And here, especially when you're in, the, you're in this climate, Sukkot is beautiful. Most of the time, so by the time you get to Sukkot, it is perfect, perfect weather. It's a nice like high 70s, maybe low 80s. The nights are cool. It is a pleasure. It's the time you'd want to be in your backyard. And rain is pretty predictable. It very rarely rains. It's perfect. So we have it in our yard. You set up a table. You play board games. You read books in the Sukkot. You take out a couch. It is an easy mitzvah. I'm not asking you to do anything special. I'm saying live your life in the sukkah. So this suggests something unique. Now you could just say, well, okay, so it's an easy mitzvah. But remember, we just said that despite the fact that it's the easy mitzvah, and maybe because it's an easy mitzvah, that is what the chance that God gives the idolaters to show that they really want to keep the Torah, to change their ways. So something about this easy mitzvah that costs nothing, that basically tells you go outside when it's pleasant and play board games in your sukkah, and you have now done a mitzvah, right? Have a party in the sukkah, have lunch outside, have a picnic in your front yard, in your backyard. That's the mitzvah. It's easy, but that's the test. So why? So here I want to suggest a theory 
Um, part of it I later found after I'd suggested it in the Sifte Chaim of Chaim Friedlander, who's very popular, I gather, in the, um, his books are very popular in the, uh, in the Haredi world. Um, but he has a very beautiful drasha on, uh, on Sukkot. And he says the following. He says, After the days of judgment, after Roshani Yom Kippur, which are very heavy, they're very intense. There's crying, and we're get right, and we we're, we're trying to get in God's book. We talk about death, we talk about tragedy, we talk about poverty, we talk about everything we don't want to talk about. We talk about after that, God says, "Okay, deep breath." God gave us Sukkot. It boils it all down to one thing. We have one goal, one hope, and that is to do God's will with a full heart. Ketzad. What do I mean? The sukkah is, the mitzvah is, live in the sukkah like you would live in your house. Anything that's non-obligatory, voluntary, the things you do every day, not because they're mitzvah, because you're human. Ka'achila, shtia, shena, eat, sleeps, drink. Nehefachim le'inyan shal mitzvah are transformed into a mitzvah. Hasukah milamedet umargila la'asot et ha'olam azad le'dirat aray. It teaches you to, to treat this world, this worldliness as your temporary dwelling, and if you have that perspective, you realize that it is a tool for serving God. In line with the verse in Mishlei, in all your ways know him. And here is how you do God's will with a full heart. And the pasuk he's quoting is this. In all ways know him, meaning God. So Friedlander says, you want to know the, the key, the, the secret of sukkah? The secret of sukkah is it teaches us a very fundamental principle. Is there is a value that permeates all mitzvot, all of Torah, everything. And that is that there are 613 mitzvot. There's a lot of things we do that are ritualized and formalized, right? Shofar and matzah. And to be fair, staka. And visiting the sick, even that has a formal language. But then there's the parts of life that are, for lack of a better word, neutral, mundane, not, not immediately obvious that they're spiritually charged. Eating, drinking, talking with friends, taking a walk, hanging out. Life, life, there's a lot of neutral in between all of the rituals and the mitzvot and the formalities. Where does that appear? What is that? How does that register in our religious life? So Rabbi Friedlander points out, well, there is a concept that emerges from the Rizim Mishlei that that is somehow also religious. All it takes is a perspective change. And all it takes is the acknowledgement that everything in life, if understood properly, is a tool for a holistic, integrated life of service of God. 
right? Everything, even the things that are not obviously mitzvah, if we understand that they can be part of a, of a life, of a meaningful life, are imbued with meaning. And the sukkah is that in an intensified way, right? Normally, eating can be a mitzvah if I eat with the proper perspective. We'll see what that is in just a minute. But if I eat with the perspective this contributes to a meaningful life, then eating is, I don't know if I want to call it a mitzvah, that overformalizes it. it, is a spiritual act, is a meaningful act, sleeping. I go to sleep to take care of my health, to have energy so that I'm not stressed out and that I don't, and I don't snap at my, at my spouse, at my children, at my coworkers. That can be spiritual. That can be meaningful, right? I eat health in a healthy way so that I can be healthy, that I can live a normal life. Whatever it might be, if it has the proper perspective, it is godly. Sukkah, and as we, this is what we've been doing the last two weeks, Sukkah takes it and says, let me remind you of that value. That sometimes spirituality isn't found in mitzvot and rituals and formalities. It's found in life. And all it takes is a perspective change. Now, Ray Friedlander hints at this, later, or talks about this later in the drasha, but I'll, I'll put my own spin on it. If we come back to the Agadah, I think we can put a very powerful message on it as follows. And then we're going to come back to this Behold If Ray Friedlander is right, then Sukkah really is, at some level, the most basic, most fundamental mitzvah. It is the mitzvah that teaches us that just because there's a limited list of mitzvot, of rituals, of formalized obligations, that doesn't mean that all the rest of life isn't somehow meaningful, isn't godly, isn't religious, isn't, put whatever word you want on it. Everything, if done right, with the proper perspective, is important, is godly. Sukkah, reminds us that by obligating to us to do, ironically, nothing new, nothing special. The mitzvah, right? We formalize what is usually informal. We concretize that which is normally natural. And we say, listen, you want to live your life? Live it. Eat, drink, schmooze, watch movies, have friends over, play board games, read a book, read the newspaper, Sit there with your phone on Cholomoed, scrolling down through Facebook and Instagram and whatever, and Twitter. I mean, maybe, uh, probably limit to what you should be looking at, well, ever, right? Maybe not look at Lashon Hara, but whatever you're going to do, do it in the sukkah. And that is holy. That's holy. And when we're sitting there in the sukkah and we're eating our, I don't know, we're watching a movie, eating popcorn, and we sit back for a second, we say, this this is godly? This is a mitzvah? The answer on Sukkot is yes. Yes, it is. It's a mitzvah. It's a biblical mitzvah. Teshvu. Cain, Tadur. Live in the Sukkot like you would in your house. Just remember that God wants you to do it. That very simple message, that those simple acts can be spiritual, that is actually the ABCs of Judaism, the ABCs of Torah, that there's a lot more to Torah than what we think of as the formal rule that we find in the Shulchan Aruch, we find in the Rambam, we find in the Chumash, we find in the Gemara. Everything in life can be part of a godly life. If you just think about it, if you 
are mindful of what you're doing and how it contributes. So the midrash, so the midrashic statement, the Agada and the Gemara Navodazara says, God comes to them and he says, Listen, I'll give you one chance. I'll give you one chance. Go to the sukkah. It's easy. What am I asking you? I'm not asking you to spend money. I'm not asking you to do anything ritualized. I'm asking you to live. Live your life in the sukkah. Have a perspective. Have the proper perspective that everything can be done as part of a godly, integrated, religious life. Everything from the most mundane to the holiest. It can all be for God if you just think about it. If you're just mindful of the way it contributes. So then the Agada imagines that they, these idolaters go out, and they do. And then it's hot. No, it's hot. It's burning hot. It's 100 degrees. It's 110 degrees. Okay, it can get hot here. Right? We're in the Middle East. It is sunny. It can be hot. It can be uncomfortable. At that moment, if I'm in my sukkah and it's 110 degrees next week, I have every right to go inside and turn on the air conditioning. But what do I do when I leave? Do I kick the sukkah? Do I, or do I say, you know what? The fact that God is letting me leave highlights the fact that this isn't here to make my life hard. This is here as a subtle reminder that even the most mundane things are for God, right? Do I recognize what God is trying to teach me? Or do I say, do I look at sukkah? Do I look at mitzvah? Do I look at religious life? Not as a recognition that an integrated whole can be meaningful. And it's more than about checking off a box and getting reward. It's about living a life that's meaningful and is enjoyable. And even the most mundane and enjoyable, normal, everyday things can be infused with spirituality if I just have perspective. And therefore, specifically because that's all God is trying to teach me, if it gets oppressive, if it starts to feel like a chore, it starts to feel like a ritual obligation that is imposed on my shoulders, then I don't have to do it anymore. I can go inside. Do I leave the sukkah and go into my house with that same perspective and say, listen, God let me go inside, but now I'm going to go in and I'm going to turn on the air conditioning and I'm going to be comfortable and I'm going to read my same book, but I'm going to keep that perspective, right? Or is that discomfort going to make me look at it and say, Ich. right? This is terrible, right? I can't see beyond this. God gave me a ritual to do. Right? He gave me a chance. He's making it uncomfortable. Ugh, not worth my time. The only difference that the Midrash, that the Agadah highlights between the idolaters and the Jew is perspective. They're allowed to leave. But it comes down, you want to know what identifies the Jewish theology versus that that's described here to these idolaters? It's, all, it's not even a mitzvah. It's perspective is that the Jew re realizes that going to the sukkah, living natural life can be holy. And specifically because of that, it's not meant to be onerous. So if it's too hot, he'll go inside and he'll live a godly life inside. And these idolaters, as it were, can't wrap their head around the fact that misvote aren't just rituals. They can be normal life. And therefore, when the ritual gets too hard and they re they, they're like... I can't handle this anymore. It's not worth it. The reward isn't worth it. They can't get out of that box and say, well, maybe I'm going inside and I'm still going to get the mitzvah. I'm still going to be rewarded because I'm going to keep the perspective. I'm going to understand that living in the sukkah 
is a mitzvah, but living my house can also be a mitzvah. Are they going to have that perspective uh, or not? That perspective is the question that the Gemara boils down the entire theology of Judaism. It's not the performance of the mitzvah, it's perspective. It's will they kick it on the way out, right? Will they treat this as a ritual? That's their chance to get reward. And therefore, when it gets too hard, they'll leave in disgust. Will they recognize the message of the sukkah that everything can be holy? And if you do it in the sukkah, great. And for whatever reason, you can't. So that's fine too, because normal life, even in your house can be sanctified also. That for this agada is all of Jewish theology boiled down to a single moment. And it's not even one mitzvah. It's when you take advantage of the exemption of mitzvah, the fact that you're uncomfortable, you can go inside. Do you realize that what it's teaching you is that life is about more than ritual and that even the mundane can be holy. And that's why God is not making this onerous. It's to highlight the fact that even when you go inside, that can be holy. Or do you treat mitzvot just like rituals that you get brownie points for? So you can go to God and say, give us my reward. And then when it gets too hard on your balance, your cost-benefit analysis, you say, oh, it's not worth it. And you leave in disgust. That's it. That's it. It's that single moment of perspective that the Gemara, as it were, in the Messianic period boils everything down to. And if that's the case, and right, Friedlander is right, then this isn't just about sukkah. It's about a perspective, not just on sukkah, but on the possibility of sanctifying the mundane. Are you willing to embrace that possibility, which at some level is counterintuitive, that a religious life doesn't have to be, quote unquote, just religious, that every moment can be holy if just entered in with the proper perspective? Are you willing to accept that? So what is the perspective? And here in the time we have left, I want to show you two radically different perspectives. One from the Rambam and one from Rav Kok. So the Rambam in Hilchot Deot, or number five, says, what is this mitzvah? What is this value? Behold, know God everywhere. What does it mean to know God everywhere? So he says, A person must direct everything he does, all of his actions, to know God. What does that mean? Via shifto, vikuma, when he sits and when he stands, vidibaro, when he speaks, hakol, lumat, ze, adavar. This is for everything. Everything is for God. Ketzar, what does that mean? Now he gives you an example. Kishi, yisavi, yitain. When he's at business, he's at work. Oh, yasem elachar, he's doing manual labor. Lito schar, and he's getting paid. Lo yye belibo likbots mamon bilvat. He shouldn't just think about making money. He should work so he can get buy what he needs. So he can get food and a home and he can get married and build a family. And when he eats and he drinks and he's involved in marital intimacy. Don't only have in mind to enjoy. You're allowed to enjoy also, but don't only think about the enjoyment. Because if someone only eats because he enjoys, he's only going to eat food that's unhealthy. Right? If you recognize that eating is about letting you live a healthy life, so we'll, you, you'll eat things. You, know, you won't only have dessert. You'll have a salad. You'll have protein. You'll make sure that you have all your macros properly counted. And it'll only be intimate to enjoy and not to recognize the holiness in the relationship to have children. 
He should eat to be healthy. Don't eat whatever you like, like a dog or a or a uh, or a donkey. Eat healthy. If it's sweet, if it's bitter, whatever, you eat healthy. Don't have things that are unhealthy. So if you have a fever, now he gives you his own scientific explanation um, and his own medical advice because he's a doctor, um, is, you know, etc. I'll skip down. When he's intimate, he should be intimate because it's also healthy because it, you can have children. We shouldn't be intimate whenever he wants. When he realizes he needs it for his body, he has to have children. So then he should be intimate. And then in Allah Gimel, he says, If he acts healthy, if he eats healthy and he works and he has children to raise them in the ways of God, um, I'll skip down a little bit here. Um, he says, you similarly both should have in mind that his body should be healthy, and strong. He does this that his body and his mind will be able to understand God. You can't think about God when you're starving or sick. You have a you have a toothache, you have a headache. Have children thinking this child will be a leader. And if you do this, you'll always be serving God. When you eat, when you drink, when you're intimate, because your thought will always be with God. To serve God better, even if you're sleeping. If you understand the benefits of sleep, it help, makes you healthy. It allows you to think. It allows you to remember. It allows you to process. And your resting is your body healthy. And you can't serve God when you're sick. Then your sleep is a spiritual act. And this is what Chazal mean when they say everything you do should be for God. And now coming back to our verse, that critical verse from Mishlei, that's what Shlomo went when he said, Then all your ways know him and God will straighten your paths. Right? So the Rambam tells you in no certain terms, everything can be spiritual. But if I asked you, to boil down exactly what does the Rama mean, right? In what way is eating, drinking, sleeping? In what way is that spiritual? So the Rambam has a very specific spin on it. And that is instrumental, utilitarian. Eating isn't holy. But if I eat, recognizing it'll make me healthy, then it's instrumentally holy. If I drink, I drink eight cups of water a day. Make sure I stay hydrated because then I'll be healthy. Instrumentally holy. I sleep because I know that sleep is the best thing, to, right? Cramming for a test doesn't help. Reviewing and sleeping allows my brain to remember it. So I do the same for Torah. Instrumentally holy. But eating, drinking, they're not holy. 
in and of themselves are instrumental. The Rambam is a little bit obsessed with this idea that it's instrumental. Um, and this is evidence from one example, which is that when he chooses the example of uh, physical intimacy, um, he is, um, his primary example is having children, right? which is clearly instrumental. Right, being intimate to have children is instrumental. It doesn't sanctify the act itself. The Ravid pipes in here and he says, "Well, let's not now. What do you mean? There are times when physical intimacy is itself a mitzvah. Namely, if um, if one if a man's wife wants to be, wants to be intimate with her husband, that's a mitzvah. Forget having children. The act itself can be a mitzvah. But the Rambam seems to be so into the idea that." physical life can only be wholly instrumentally, that he sort of ignores that point. But nevertheless, the Ramam gives you a language for saying that all of life can be wholly, just instrumentally so. If you contrast this with the Rufkok, and I'm not going to read through all of them, but I gave you some beautiful passages in Rufkok. Rufkok takes a very different perspective, and, and the truth is amongst Hasidim, Hasidic thinkers, this is very popular as well, though Rav Kook, I think, developed the, the, the idea much more extensively, um, though he's influenced, I think, in certain ways by Hasidic thought as well. I mean, that is the idea that normal life, physical life, isn't just instrumentally holy. God didn't make us brains in a vat to contemplate God. He made us people in bodies. And if that's the case, then if I respect my body because I recognize it's also godly, then I'm not, it's not an instrumental act of holiness. Every single thing I do can be fundamentally holy, can be fundamentally godly. To take a, a famous example here in, in Orot, which is originally written as a letter, he says, our demands of our body is great. We need a healthy body. He said, throughout Jewish history, we have dealt with the soul so much. We are a very soul happy people. We love the soul. But we forgot that the body is holy too. We gave up on health and physical strength. We forgot that our body is also holy. Not less than our spirit. Right? We especially in Galu, we didn't have a state. We didn't have, we didn't have all the trappings of a state. So we weren't farmers, but whatever. He said, we left, we forgot that practical daily life at our physical senses, reality, our physical felt reality. Because we didn't believe, right? God didn't tell us be a Jew anywhere. The ideal is in a land with agriculture. Get your hands dirty. That's holy. He said, we forgot. He said, if you look in the Gemara, the Gemara says, emunat. It quotes a pasuk and it says, emunat. What is emunat? The faith? What does that refer to? Zeseder Zraim. Is agricultural, it's the agricultural laws, the sixth of Shas that talks about agriculture. Why is that faith? Because to plant is an act of faith. You're believing that God will help you. We're only going to succeed. Our chuva, our repentance will only succeed 
if we have gam tshuva gashmit, yotzeret dam bari, basar bari, kufim chatuvim veitanem, and he takes this very far. If we have healthy blood, healthy meat, have muscles, ruach lohed zorech agave shirim chazakim, we have our our vibrant spirit 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 stretched out on strong muscles. Ubegvurat basara mikudash ta'ir neshama shenechlasha, and through the body. The spirit that has been weakened will be strengthened. This is like um, resurrection from the dead. Exercise. When people exercise, you see these 18-year-olds are running around my community every day, five in the morning. They're up running for an hour because they know that they're going to need to defend their people defend their neighbors. They want to be in good shape for the army. He says, these people, it, it integrates the holiest of these tzaddikim that are, are dealing with God's holy names. And he goes on like this for a long time. And he includes not just exercise. He includes all the things we don't think of as spiritual. He talks about art, and literature, all the things that are not obviously spiritual. But he says, but they are, because they're about humanity. And human beings, we are created by God. Everything, if we respect, we recognize God didn't make us brains and vats to think about God. He made us people in bodies to live life in a holy way. Then even eating, drinking, it's not like the Rambam, instrumentally holy. It is holy. Right, respecting the divinity in our normal life, seeing God everywhere, that is holy. So here we now have two perspectives. Now let's bring it all together. So the Gemara from the top, the Gemara says, you want to know, you want to boil down all of Jewish theology, all of Jewish practice to one thing? Let's tell you a story. If in the end of time, the idolaters will come to God and say, we want one more chance. Show us what it means to live a Torah life. God says, fine, I'll give you a mitzvah. It's an easy mitzvah. It's sukkah. Why is it easy? Because it doesn't cost you anything. And what am I asking you to do? I'm asking you to live in your sukkah, just like you do in your house. And not only that, so much do I want to show you that it's that there's spirituality in the mundane, that if it gets uncomfortable, leave. And the Gemara says, you know what the difference is between whether you understand the Torah, or you don't, it's not whether you live in the Soka, it's not whether you do the mitzvot, it's one thing. When you leave, because it's too hard, because it's onerous, what perspective do you have? Do you leave and you kick the sukkah or not? What does that mean? Do you recognize that God is trying to teach you something? That even the most mundane things can be spiritual, and therefore he doesn't want it to be onerous? He wants you to see the latent spirituality in everything, and eating and drinking. So if it's uncomfortable, don't do it, because that'll give you the wrong perspective. Or do you look at mitzvot just like things that you do to get reward? I check off a box. Do you look at it as an opportunity to live a life that is holy in the mundane, quote unquote, and the spiritual or not? That perspective is everything. And as Ray Friedlander says, sukkah is just a microcosm of what it means to be a Torah Jew, to believe in Torah, that everything in life can be spiritual, that everything is part of an integrated life. If you get that, you've got the entire Torah down pat. You don't get it, you've missed everything. And what does it mean? And now we've seen two perspectives. According to the Rambam, this is merely instrumental. There are mitzvot. There are formal rituals. That's the end goal. 
but everything else can be sanctified as a tool. If I eat and I sleep properly and I exercise so that I have a clear mind, so that I don't snap at people. So then I've, as an instrument, I've turned that into something holy. Rav Cook takes it even farther and says, no, no, no. If God had wanted you only to be involved in rituals and mitzvot, so he would have made you into a brain in a vat and you would contemplate God and that'd be great. But God made us people in bodies with all that comes with. And if God did that, then that means that that's holy too. And it's not just as an instrument. It's no, to eat properly, to exercise, to sleep, is to have respect for myself, to have respect for my humanity, humanity being a reflection of divinity, right? There are many midrashim that go in this direction, Rabbi Kiva, who before he would take a shower would say, I'm going to do a mitzvah. And his students would say, what mitzvah? He said, well, I'm going to take a shower. What do you mean? I'm a person. I'm going to make myself dignified. I'm going to make myself, I'm going to respect myself. That's also a mitzvah. So if Cook says, it's not just instrumental, it's recognizing that there is godliness, there is holiness, there's everywhere, in everything you do, in the ritual and the mundane. You want to boil down everything to one thing, it's that. That every part of life. Now, the Rambam is also powerful, don't get me wrong. Right? Rav Kook is even more radical. But whether you take the Rambam or Rav Kook, they're saying you want to boil down Torah, it's that there isn't a sharp divide between mitzvah and non-mitzvah, between ritual and not, between religious life and regular life. Everything with the proper perspective is a reflection of a divinity that is inherent in life. And you know what mitzvah highlights it? Sukkah. Because once a year, God says, I have a mitzvah for you, but it's a weird mitzvah. It's not like any other mitzvah. There's no ritual. There's no nothing. I want you to just take life and move it into the sukkah. Remind yourself that eating and drinking and schmoozing and watching movies and eating your popcorn and talking to your friends and playing a board game and relaxing, all of that with the right perspective, with the right attitude is also holy. That's also holy. And once a year, if we do that, Right? We recognize that our eating can be holy, our drinking can be holy, our schmoozing can be holy. Well, then when we leave Sukkot, we might carry over those messages to the week after. And when we're eating, we might be a little bit more mindful. We might eat a little bit more healthy because we remember, oh, eating can be holy if it either contributes to me serving God or for a cook, respects the divinity that is in me. Maybe next week I'll exercise. Right? Because I will re realize the importance of being healthy, either because it allows me to serve God or because that is serving God. That's that's respecting the divinity in man. But sukkah, the, the quote-unquote formal mitzvah, is to take everyday life and live it there to remind us exactly of this principle. Right? That there is no sharp line that divides religious and non-religious life, ritual and not ritual. Everything, if thought about properly, can be part of a religious life, can be holy. Um, and that, I think, so we've now seen for three weeks, three values that are really universal. The appreciation of aesthetics, what it means to commit to that and integrate that into life. The importance of human dignity. And this week, the, the holiness in regular life. And Sukkati teach those and intensifies them. Aesthetics in the lulav, right? the dignity of man and the exemption of mitzvah from sukkah, that if it's too hard, you don't have to do it. And this week, the fact that sukkah, 
the mitzvah really is just live your life, just realize that it's holy. Right, Sukkah, Sukkot, and the mitzvah of Sukkot highlight these universal values by intensifying them for one week a year. But the hope is that after that week, we carry those messages throughout the year. So with that, a Gemar Chatim Tova and a Chag Sameach, because the whole point of this series was that people forget about Sukkot. So it happens to be Yom Kippur comes first, but I hope that you carry these messages of Sukkot and you learn its lessons, not just so you have a meaningful Sukkot, but so that you can infuse that meaning into the rest of your year. So with that, I will leave you any questions or anything. You can always reach out to me later, as people know, my email's at the top of the source sheets. Um, but I will turn to you, Evie, to, uh, to, uh, to finish it off. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Ziering, and thank you so much also to uh, everyone who uh, joined us today um, uh, on uh, here on Zoom and also uh, live on Facebook. Uh, thanks again for being part of our learning community. Um, we Elul Azman classes will wrap off this week here at Drishad, the final session of uh, Rabbi Kelson's at uh, 7.30 uh, a.m. Eastern, is that? That makes sense. Uh, she it's a shiur on uh, Elul with the um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but uh, P.S. Sesner Rebbe at uh, this P.S. Wednesday. Is, is that right? Okay, perfect. And uh, Rav Nitzanim's 2 p.m. Eastern shiur on Thursday: Ripples of Repentance, uh, Spiritual Dimensions of Tashlich. Uh, we have more uh, classes scheduled. Uh, you can find out about classes and register at 5783.drisha.orgaloo. Maybe check on the time for that one class that I mentioned. Um, something tells me that it's probably PM, but I am not sure. Uh, so this would be a good one to just double check on the time. Uh, and Shana uh, Tova, and uh, we'll be together again. Thank you so much.